Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And it's Jesus speaking to the dead church. That is the church of Sardis. In the first century, the city of Sardis was at one time a prominent and wealthy city in Lydia. An earthquake devastated Sardis in A.D. 17. Sardis continued to exist, but instead of prospering, its residents chose to dwell on its dead past, never getting back the wealth and the power that they once had. Now, Sardis had a reputation for being on top of the world. But that position had stopped being a reality. And the city seemed, like I said, seemed to have life. But truthfully, it was nothing more than a shell of the life that it had before. And the church of Sardis took its lead from the city. In other words, it had all of the outside signs of a busy, productive congregation. But decay was taking its toll internally, that is, inside the church. The church left its glory days in the memory of what had been. And unfortunately, like the city that surrounded it, the reputation of the church's former glory no longer matched the current reality. That is, what it was was not what was going happening in the day that it was, uh, again, mentioned here. The past was one thing. The future didn't live up to that past. What, ex- what exactly is a dead church anyway? I'm sure you've all heard somebody talk about a dead church. What qualifies you? What lucky qualification do you have to be called a dead church? It all depends on who you talk to. It all depends upon why they're calling you a dead church. It could be they have something against you. They don't like you for some reason, whatever. There's a lot of reasons. Here are, some, here are some descriptions of a dead church. Well, I grew up in a dead church. Oh, don't go to that church. It's a dead church. And that could be because it doesn't have a lot of ministries or, or support groups going on. Well, that doesn't make a church a dead church. A church's worship might be described as dead as well as the church because, well, they don't speak in tongues. Listen to what Paul said about that in 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 19. He says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I've heard this phrase, and you probably have too. Oh, that church is the first church of the frigid air. Or, oh, many are called and few are frozen. The problem is that most churches, even dead ones, look alive. They're busy. They're active. That is on the outside. But, but don't mistake activity for spiritual life. What looks alive from our human perspective might be dead in the eyes of God. We want to know how God sees things, not how man sees things. How does God see you? How does God look at you? How does God look at us? Even a dead church meets regularly to pray and sing songs and collect. Maybe they collect enough money to pay their bills. They might be growing in number. They might be buying property and constructing buildings. 
They might have a big staff. They might have all the latest and best techno gadgets, you know, the big screens and the flashing lights and all that stuff. They might have all of these things and still be called a dead church, or I should say still be a dead church. Don't be deceived thinking dead churches are relatively something strange only today, like they didn't exist a long time ago. No, they existed all the way back in the first century. We have it here at Sardis. This is a clear message. And this is clear in this message to the church in Sardis where Jesus, you know, he was like a doctor overlooking the church there, trying to figure, you know, looking at it and, 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 and looking at his physical health, or I should say his spiritual health. And Jesus is looking over the church and he had diagnosed the problem in the church. He said, you're dead. That's the problem. He said, but because I, Christ, am the resurrection and the life, I can offer you life again. See, Jesus, no matter where you are in your life, can give you like real life. Real life with real power to overcome sin and bondage to sin, whatever that might be. Looking back at church history, Sardis represents the Protestant church during the period between A.D. 1517 and approximately A.D. 1800. It's a time that started with the Reformation. And it takes us into the beginning of the great missionary movement in the history of the church. Now, the church at Sardis was presumed to be alive. But the Lord Jesus said, no, it was dead. And the downfall, or I should say the downhill spiral represented by these churches started with the church of Ephesus who lost their first love, Christ. Continuing on with Pergamos, which was a worldly church, and Thyatira was a tolerant church. They allowed sin in the church. And it reached its low here at Sardis. The church at Sardis was a church under the control of sin, unbelief, and false doctrine. You know, it was like the fig tree that Jesus saw, remember, at a distance. He cursed it in the parable because it grew leaves. It looked like it bore fruit. It looked like it would have figs. All outward evidence said this is a fruitful tree. But when he got up close, there was no fruit on it. And please keep this in mind. It's interesting... Again, how people will complain that the church is dead. Who's the church? Everybody sitting inside. So if you call the church dead, we need to start looking at ourselves. If the church is dead, we, the church, have a problem. He said, yeah, and again, we're the church. Now, do you expect the church building, cement and wood and paint and windows, do you, do you expect the church building to bring life into the church? Do you think if a church had a bigger building and it was better furnished and had a bigger staff, that that would bring life to the church? The building is deader than you are. It's a lifeless object. And like all seven churches, the church at Sardis was a real church existing in John's day. And yet it also represents the dead churches that have existed all through church history and unfortunately still exist this morning. They appear to give light. I mean, you can drive all around neighborhoods and see people pulling into the church and people walking around. Uh, again, it, it may be a dead church. They appear to give light, but it's just a figment of our imagination. We're still listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say to the churches. 
Because this, these messages from Jesus are applicable to our day just as well as to the first century church. Remember, ch- churches are people. We, the people, are the church. And you know what? Human nature hasn't changed. And until the heart changes, people won't. Until human nature is changed, churches will remain the same. And as we go on in our study, we're not to think about these letters that we're reading here as just being old religious artifacts that belong that should be displayed in some museum somewhere. Just the opposite. These letters are something to compare ourselves to. It's the standard by which we examine ourselves. Our standard is Jesus Christ. Not the guy next door or some big guy or some big well-known name or somebody important. That's not our standard. Jesus Christ is our standard. He's the one that we measure ourselves by. Listen to what Paul said about the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11. Paul said, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Nor let us uh, commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul says, now all of these things were written here, all right, that happened to be an example. He says, and they were written, notice, for our admonition, for our warning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul said, these things are written here in the scripture so that we could learn by them, be warned by them, and not fall into the traps of them. The Bible says that God is a just judge. He is a fair judge, Psalm 7, 11. And God is going to judge the world, Psalm 9, 8. We read that his scales of justice, they are fair and they are balanced. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 16, 11 says, honest weights and scales are the Lord. God doesn't tip the scales. And then 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter said, the Lord judges righteously. We have a righteous, fair judge in Jesus Christ. And it's by his scales and it's by his judgments and it's by his weights that he weighs the hearts and the thoughts of all men and all nations and churches. That's how he weighs their behavior. How does it measure up to the word of God? The church at Sardis here was about to step out or step onto the Lord's scales and he was going to weigh them. So now let's begin with verse one of chapter three. Jesus says to the church, he says, and and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus here in verse one introduces himself to the church in Sardis. And he introduces himself in words that are directly related, related to their situation. Now, the church at Sardis was probably founded as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Sardis was about 30 miles south of Thyatira in the valley of the Hermas River. Now, Sardis was built on a hill about 1,500 feet above the valley floor. Its location made the city almost invincible. 
And the hill Sardis was built on 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 um, on a smooth rock that on a was built on a hill that had smooth rocks that were only straight on three sides. The city could only be approached from the south, but only through a steep and rugged path. The only disadvantage to what was an almost perfect location was there wasn't much room for the city to grow. And in time, as Sardis grew, a new city sprang up at the bottom of that hill. The old location continued to be a refuge to run to whenever there was danger just around the corner. And because the location seemed invincible, it caused those who were living in Sardis to become overconfident. They let down their guard. And you see, when we're overconfident of ourselves, when we think we we know what we're doing and we got it made, that can be the worst place to be. That's a dangerous place to be because that's your weakest place. Because where you feel you're strong, you let your guard down and the enemy comes in and takes you. They became overconfident. And after a while, their overconfidence and their complacency led to the city's downfall. Because of their carelessness, the unthinkable happened. Sardis was conquered. And in John's day, Sardis was prosperous, but it was declining. Its glory days were gone. Both the city and the truth that was there had lost their liveliness. The church is going to be weighed and it's going to be judged to see if its holy character can stand the test. The church is going to be weighed against all that's suggested by the seven stars, which are the attributes of the Holy Spirit. The church today, the church this morning, all churches that that profess to be of Christ, the church today needs the Holy Spirit working and leading and empowering it. The Holy Spirit is not a luxury. The Holy Spirit is a necessity. What the Holy Spirit is to what what air is to our lungs is what the Holy Spirit is to the church. We need him. Does the church measure up to its heavenly calling? Is the church serving the purpose that it was given? Is it serving God's will? This church, Sardis, with its impressive reputation, is going to be tested. What has she done with the Holy Spirit? That wonderful gift that she's been giving. Jesus has given the church quite a position in heavenly places. Far above principalities and powers. Is Sardis living up to that position? Are we? Is our church living up to that position? Has the church traded heavenly things for earthly things? Is its mind on the things above and not on the things of earth? Has has the church traded God's word for man's word? Because you always say, you always hear, oh, how can you read the Bible? How can you trust the Bible? Man wrote it. Therefore, we listen to Dr. So-and-so or Guru So-and-so or whatever title they might have. Has the church traded man's word or God's word for man's word? Are her treasures in heaven? Has the church sold her birthright for a bowl of soup? Jesus presents himself here to the church at Sardis as the one having the seven spirits of God. In other words, he is the one who sent the Holy Spirit into the world. Sardis represents the Protestant church today. The church today needs the Holy Spirit working in it. 
You know, many people, many, many churches, they think they need methods and programs and professional skills to solve all of our problems. Remember how the church was born in the book of Acts by the Holy Spirit. It was born of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Is the church living up to that today? He said, what we really need to do is to get to the, get, get to the, what we really need to get to the person of Christ, uh, whom only the Holy Spirit can make real and living to us. We need to get back to the Holy Spirit. He's the one who can make the person of Christ real and living to us. This is the thing that the church needs this morning. Adrian Rogers said, if a church is not supernatural, it's superficial. It's just a social gathering. Jesus said here to this church, I know your works. This is his word of commendation again. He says, hey, I know your works. He says, but. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. The church today as a whole has a name. And that name lives on, but it's dead. Many Protestant churches today are just going through the outward appearance. The motion with no emotion. There's no drive, there's no passion, there's no love, there's no fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. They're doing a lot of planning and a lot of building all the time. People are coming and going. People are coming mostly on Sunday, Sunday mornings. But where are they on Wednesday nights? Where are they on Sunday evenings? They should be coming to hear the word of God. Coming to hear the word of God. We are to be feeding on Christ. Not fasting on Christ, like many Christians do. Come on Sunday and they live the rest of the week on old, stale manna. Many Christians are living all through the week on Sunday's manna. That's the case. If that's it, you're starving. You're going to become anemic, spiritually speaking. Try living on one meal a week for the physical. We don't do that, do we? We can't function. But if the spiritual man who needs to eat every single day of Christ, what we eat once a week on Sunday, and, and we think we can get along all week long, and we wonder why we get beat up and we go through trials and we can't, you know, we don't have the wisdom to get through the week. Hey, I'm not feeding the spiritual man. We are to be feeding on Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 53 through 67. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and, illiter- and this is symbolic, obviously, not literally, but it, 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 you know, it's symbolic of what I'll share with you at the end. Most assuredly, I say to you, <clears throat> unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Notice the word abide means to stay or to remain in a person, place, or thing. So he says, he who abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. You see, Jesus Christ is to be taken in. Not something that you look at from afar. It's speaking of a personal, living, everyday relationship with him. Jesus said, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. 
I call myself a Christian. I have a name, but I'm not living like one. I don't have the behavior of one. That's what it means by just having a name. Christianity today has just become a name for a lot of people in a lot of churches. We need to get back to a biblical Christianity. What the Bible describes as Christianity. What the Bible describes as a Christian. What a terrible thing to say. You have a name, but you're dead. But it's a true picture of the church today. The church at Sardis forgot the significance of its heavenly calling. It forgot the significance of its holy character. The salt lost its savor. The light has gone out. Let's look at verses 2 through 3 now. As Jesus goes on, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are, notice, that are ready to die. So some of them are still kicking in there. For I have not found your works perfect before God. He says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, notice, if you're not going to heed these things, I will come upon you like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Jesus found the church lacking. He found it deficient, anemic, if you will. Jesus gave the command to the few faithful Christians at Sardis, because you see, there's no sense in talking to those who are dead. He's telling them, look, if your church is going to survive, it desperately needed, you know, it desperately needed life. Jesus gave them five steps now in verses two through three to, uh, to follow if they're going to be spiritually restored and mark them down. He gave them five steps to follow to be spiritually restored. First, notice he told them they, they needed to be what? Watchful. He said, be watchful there in verse two. There was no time for indifference. There's no time to be lazy. He was telling him, hey, you just can't do what everybody else is doing. He says, don't get caught up in the cares of this life. Don't become entangled in the things of this world. He says, don't just go with the flow. Any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight against the current. Jesus is telling him, you have to change the direction you're headed. This small believing remnant, those who weren't quite dead here, they needed to look at what was going on in their church. They needed to evaluate the situation. They needed to get involved in changing things. They needed to, they needed to deal with sin and error, and they had to make a difference. Are we making a difference? Secondly, he said, look, you need to strengthen the things which remain. In other words, those things that still have breath in them, strengthen them. Strengthen the things which remain. Now, the things that he's talking about here, they're not people, but spiritual realities. And I would say, you know, get back to the reading of the word of God. Get back to a personal relationship with God. Get back to being led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus exhorted the true Christians at Sardis to fan those dying embers that are left in their church and turn them into burning fires. The third step, he said, they had to do was he said, notice, remember what they, you have received and heard. What was it they had received and heard? The word of God. 
They needed to get back to the basics of the Word of God, to the truths of the Word of God. They needed to remember the Gospel and what the apostles had taught them. The believers at Sardis needed to reaffirm their belief in the truth about Jesus Christ and about sin and salvation and sanctification. They had to be reminded about their solid biblical foundation in order to be revived. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 125, Revive me according to your word. It's the word. It's getting back to the word of God that revives us. That makes us alive in Christ. Fourthly, after being reminded and reestablished in the word of God, he said, hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to God's word. Keep God's word. Do it by the book. Christianity is what he's talking about. Do it by the book, the Bible. Biblical Christianity. Without obedient lives, there would be no revival. God doesn't reward disobedience. He lets go. Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments knows and teaches men so. In other words, he who doesn't live these commandments, okay, he breaks them, he doesn't live them, but he's teaching them to others. In other words, they, they, they're not doing, but they're telling you to do it. He says, they shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who practice what they preach will be great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus placed doing before teaching. Jesus placed a premium on doing. The fifth and last thing Jesus said for them to do, he told the faithful remnant they had to do, what they had to do now was repent. Repent. That is, mourn for their sins. Be sorrowful for their sins. That's what leads to repentance. When you are truly sorry for your sin, when you're truly, truly mournful for your sin, it leads to repentance. And then true repentance. It's not just being sorry because I got caught. But true repentance will cause me to not do it anymore. I'm not doing it. Lord, I'm serious. I, I'm sorry. I messed up. And I'm seeking your forgiveness, God. And it will true forgiveness, true repentance, I should say, will be evidenced by I'm not going to do that anymore. The believers at Sardis were to confess and turn away from their sins. And if they obediently and diligently did these things, it would bring revival. You see, if there wasn't revival in their hearts, because that's where revival starts. Here, it's not by hanging a big sign on the building and saying revival week. No. It begins when each one of us returns to the basics of the word of God. A renewed love for the word, a renewed love for worshiping him, and a new love for, renewed love for him. That brings revival. He said, if there wasn't a revival in their hearts, it would bring harsh consequences. And Jesus warned them. 
He said, if you don't wake up, he said, here, notice, I will come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I will come to you. Now, the picture of Jesus coming like a thief always carries the idea of pending judgment. And it's a common subject in the New Testament, either referring to immediate punishment or the second coming of Christ. Here in the context, it's believed to point to impending judgment. He says, if you don't wake up and get it right, man, I'm going to come and bring judgment upon you. If they didn't repent, it would definitely lead to the Lord's quick punishment. The people in Sardis did not have to wait until Jesus returned. If they didn't repent, he would come unexpectedly, but like a thief. Understand, Jesus could come at any time. And it can be inferred here to be a warning of the judgment that faces all dead churches when Jesus returns. The only way to avoid the stricter judgment that's waiting for those who know the truth and turn away from it is to follow the path to spiritual life. What the Lord is saying here to this church at Sardis is, guys, wake up and watch out. He's saying, guys, don't go to sleep. Jesus is saying, don't get careless, don't get lazy, don't get caught off guard. I think the church in general is not looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. They're not paying attention to the signs that are all around us. Jesus, based on our signs, you know, if you're paying, Jesus is standing at the threshold. Jesus could come at any moment. Tonight or tomorrow, even before we get out of here today. We are to be looking for his imminent return. Sardis did not know when the enemy was coming. We don't know when Jesus is coming. We have no way of knowing at all. We do have the signs that warns us to be on the lookout, but we don't know the day or the hour. But we also know that the rapture could take place at any time. So the church is to be on alert. The, alert, the church is to be constantly watching for Christ's coming, looking for that blessed hope that we have. Are you looking for that blessed hope? Now, anybody can be ready when they know the exact hour when something's going to take place. But you have to always be ready for an unexpected hour. And the Lord Jesus here is saying to the church that they are to be on the alert continually. Look at verse 4 now. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, the church as a whole may not be listening to the Lord's calling. But there would always be those faithful few. The Lord always has those faithful few who do not bow their knee to another. But there weren't enough of those faithful, uh, faithful few here to change Jesus' overall opinion of the church as being dead. But you see, Jesus hadn't forgotten those who remained faithful to him, no matter how few they are. God had a faithful few even in the dead church at Sardis, but he knew of them. He remembered them. There were still a few sincere, humble, and separated saints among all of those that were worldly. In a devotional by John Phillips, this is what he said. Jesus called his church a little flock. In the world's eyes, it's not very important. But to God, it's very important. 
It's not a big herd or pack, but a little flock. We might be little and nobody to the world, but to God we are very important. God's people never become an overpowering majority in this world. But the world forgets the bottom line. That his little flock, that it despises as God's little flock who he loves and protects. And the king is coming back. And his kingdom will come. And Jesus will reign. And when he enters his kingdom, guess what? We will too. Biblical Christianity today has its saints who love the word who are faithful to Christ even in these days, and they stand by the Word of God. They don't get involved in sin, and they don't get involved in sinful behavior, nor are they involved in fleshly behavior. Jesus describes the faithful few here as those who have not defiled their garments. The word defile means to stain, to smear, or to pollute. They haven't defiled their garments. And the word defiled here in verse 4 was a word that was familiar to readers in Sardis because of the city's wool-dyeing industry. In Scripture, garments symbolize a person's character. The faithful remnant could come into God's presence because, you see, they hadn't defiled, they hadn't polluted themselves, but they displayed their godly character. Specifically, Jesus says of them, they walk, they'll walk with me in white because, notice, they're worthy. They're going to walk with me in my kingdom because they're worthy. Now, in ancient times, white garments that were worn, they were worn for celebration and festivals. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.8, Let your garments always be white. White garments were a symbol of joy, a symbol of celebrations and festivals. And because they refused to defile their garments, that is, those few remnants, those few that still followed and obeyed Christ, because they refused to defile their garments, they refused to defile their character and to live for Christ, Jesus would replace those humanly preserved, clean garments one day with heavenly pure ones. The white robes of purity, Jesus promises here and in verse 5, are worn by Jesus himself and the angels and in other places of Scripture. Those who have a measure of holiness and purity now, they're going to be given perfect holiness and purity in the future. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes. This is the fifth time we hear Jesus say, he who overcomes. He says it over and over again. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is important to listen to. Here in verse 5, Jesus says something that's caused some difficulty in understanding. The overcomer is not only promised a white garment. He's promised that he can never have his name erased from the book of life. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. See, it's not how well we got out of the starting blocks. It's not how far we got in the race. It's did we finish. It's holding on to the end. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, enduring is not the way to salvation. It's evidence that a person is truly committed to Jesus Christ. Now, in the book, 
called The Revelation of Jesus Christ by Dr. John Walford. He gives a very good explanation of what is meant by this verse about not having your name blotted out of the book of life. Now, some have, he said, now some have suggested that there's no clear statement here that anybody will have his name blotted out, but rather the promise that his name will not be blotted out because of his faith in Christ. But the suggestion is that there is a possibility. He goes on to say, on the basis of this, some have considered the book of life not as the role of those who are saved, but rather a list of those for whom Christ died, which is everyone. As they come to maturity and are faced with the responsibility of accepting or rejecting Christ, their names are blotted out if they fail to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Whereas those who do not accept Christ as Savior are confirmed in their position in the book of life and their names are confessed before the Father and the heavenly angels. This is what he's saying. The book of life contains the name of every human being born. Because this is Jesus died for everyone. But on that day that you stand, if you never receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name is then erased from the book of life. And on that day you stand before God. And the Bible says the books will be open. And there'll be all these names. But yours. Because you thought, I don't need Christ. I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in God. And you're going to be standing there before God and they go, well, sorry, but your name's not here. And the Bible says that you, at that point, you'll be cast into hell, into hell. That's going to be a horrible thing to go through. But think about it on the other hand. To those who stand before God and, and, it says, and, and Jesus says, Father, he's one of mine. And, well, there's his name. And God ushers them into the kingdom. Think about it, to be welcomed by Jesus Christ and to have him lead us past the ranks of angels gathered together just for this purpose, up along the golden streets of heaven, up past the angels, up to the throne of God himself, and to hear the Lord Jesus call you by name and to present you in person to the heavenly Father as his well-beloved. Father, he's one of mine. And then to hear the father say, bring him the best robe and put it on him. Think of it, a beautiful white robe, white like we've never seen before, like the experience of Jesus that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured, it, we, we read that something happened to his countenance, something happened to his clothes. Listen to what it says in Matthew 17 too. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. The angel at the tomb of Christ's resurrection, we read in Matthew 28, 3, the angel at the tomb, his clothing was as white as snow. What an awesome reward for faithfulness to Jesus Christ, to have a robe like that wrapped around our shoulders and to be invited to walk along the shiny ways of glory in clothes as white as the sun, as white as light. Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But here's the sad fate of those on the other side. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that now. They called him Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does. Notice there's the word does again. It's not about what I say. It's about what I do. They said, I know Jesus. But he said, hey, they're not going to enter in. 
He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And haven't we done many wonders in your name? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Wow. Lord, I, 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 I did this. I did that. I did it all in your name. And Jesus says, hey, I don't know you. And then he says, depart from me, you who practice lawless deeds. Now, when he says, I never knew you, it's not that he didn't know who you are. Jesus knows us all. He knows every human being that, that ever lives and is living. But when he says, I never knew you, it means in terms of a personal relationship. You never had anything to do with me personally. You knew me by name. You had a name. It's like saying, I know somebody. Yeah, I, I know Joe, but I know many, but not personally. In a relationship. A lot of people know Jesus, but how many people say, oh, I believe, I believe in Jesus. What they're saying is, I believe that he existed. I, I believe, you know, that, that, that once upon a time he walked upon the land. But, you know, I don't have a personal relationship with him. I don't live for him. I don't serve him. I don't worship him. I don't love him. That's what many say when they say, I believe. When the Bible says to believe on him, it means to believe him. It means to obey him. It means to follow him in a living relationship with him. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, hey, I never knew you. In other words, we didn't have a relationship. You did what you wanted to do. You thought that what you did was going to get you into the kingdom of God. But he says, you're not going. You're not going. Verse 6 in closing. So after this, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Sardis ends here. Like the others did. It ends with an encouragement to listen to what has been said. Listen to the counsel, listen to the commands, and listen to the promise that it has. The spiritually dead, continue playing church, needed to pay attention to Jesus' warning of coming judgment. The unresponsive believers needed to wake up before it was too late to save the church. And the faithful few, they could take comfort knowing that their salvation was secure. So listen up. As long as you still have breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. Until Jesus returns, it is not too late for you to find way the, find the way to spiritual renewal. But understand, you are not guaranteed a single breath. You are not guaranteed making it through this night. Death could come at any time for every one of us. You know, we think we're going to live to be whatever that target age is you, you want to live. And I don't know that any, not most people know the day that they're going to die. We think we're just going to go on and live to our ripe old age. 
But again, I could die before I get home. You could die next week. You could die before you get out of the parking lot. You're gambling with eternity. If you think, oh, I can wait to accept Christ. I, you know, I got, I, I got wild oats to sow. I go, you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what God's plan. The Bible says that, that, that death is an appointed time. It's appointed for man to die once, the Bible says. It's appointed for man to die once. Then comes the judgment. In other words, it's like God has a, in my puny mind, a Rolodex on his desk, or I should say his calendar, and he looks at, oh, oh, it's, it's Joe's day. It's Joe's time. Go get him. It may not be on my, my day planner. I got a lot of things to do, Lord. I, I got a lot of things planned, but well, sorry. And he says to the angels, go get him. So we don't know the day or the hour. It says death is the point, but then comes the judgment. Once I stand before him and the books are open, Jesus says, hey, Father, he's one of mine. Awesome. That's what you want. You don't want to get caught up there with the books open and your name's not there. Well, Lord, I was close. I went to church a couple of times. (laughs) Oh, I like singing those songs. On the last Bible study, oh, it was great. Well, what did you do with my son? He wants to know. See, that's the key. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this, this wonderful word, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your son, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you surrendered your life. You didn't fight at the cross. You didn't try to stop what was about to happen to you. You voluntarily opened up your arms and laid them on that cross and allowed those soldiers, those Roman soldiers, to drive spikes through your wrists and through your feet. And they'd be stuck on a cross until you breathed your last breath. A very painful and torturous death. And you did it for me. And you did it for those sitting here. And for all who want to receive you. You did it for all flesh. If you're here this morning and and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but as Jesus said, hear what the Spirit has to say. And you've sensed that the Spirit has spoken to your heart. And you're tired of believing the lies of this world And you want to believe the truth of God. Then as we worship. You get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song's over. We'll pray a simple prayer of faith together.